on episode 13 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about training startups in InsureTech with Sabine Vanderlinden of Startup Bootcamp. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology. It's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own R&D team into technology that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. show today. I'm so excited. We got two Texans and somebody over in Queen's country, London, England. So exciting to have uh, a really international crew here today. Uh, again, I'm James Benham, your InsureTech geek, and uh, we are not going to talk about anything but tech today. That's right. Uh, now, I, I pull, to reference like Harry Potter, we're not going to talk about that which shall not be named, the virus which shall not be named. We're not talking about that. You hear enough about that everywhere else. You're here to geek out on InsureTech because the world keeps turning and InsureTech keeps building, and that's what we're here to, here to discuss today. And with me today, uh, for the first time as a co-host... Rob Galbraith uh, from San Antonio, Texas. Good to see another Texan on. Rob, how's it going today? It's going awesome, James. Great to see us uh, rocking our uh, our casual look in the uh, home <laughs> office today. Exactly. We're all home officing it. Everybody's everybody's at JB Knowledge. All 213 of our employees are are rocking it out at home. We we opened a Teams. We, we use Teams, and we opened a Teams channel, and we're sharing like photos of our home gyms, our home desks, and the animals that are around us. And it's, I mean, we recognize this could be going on for a while, so we're getting comfortable, getting set up, and uh, <laughs> definitely trying to be as comfortable as possible. Joining us from London, England, Sabine Vanderlinden. How are you doing? I'm very well, James. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's one o'clock here in London, so <laughs> I cannot wait <laughs> to have my first glass of Excellent. something at some point. <laughs> yeah, you know, as we say in Texas and around the United States, it's five o'clock somewhere. So uh, it doesn't even matter if it's five o'clock. If it's time to have a drink, get a drink. It's all it's all good. I, I totally respect that. Really, really, really uh uh, excited to have both of you, uh, both of you here today. Rob as a co-host, uh, Sabine as our as our guest. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Rob Galbraith uh, is the most interesting man in insurance. That's right. Has a wonderful book called "The End of Insurance as We Know It." Go and check that out, and uh, he'll be joining me and uh, asking some great questions. And uh, also a fellow Texas Michigander goes from Texas to Michigan. I go from College Station to South Haven. He goes from San Antonio to uh, East Lansing. So we we make this similar north-south migration, like giant birds that fly uh, north and south. Uh, so it's uh, we're gonna have we're gonna have a good time talking today. Let's just jump right in, Sabine. The, your co-founder of Startup Bootcamp, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But walk me through your life. Where were you born and raised? What did you study? What did you think you were going to do as a career, and how did you end up here? Okay. So I am French. So I was born in Paris uh, many years ago. I still look quite young, so I'm going to keep my age, uh, if I can um, say, Eden. Uh, That's fine. But I started, uh, yes, I, I'm French. And so 
I have my little peculiarities. Um, I moved to London, though, uh, in 1993. Uh, I got a grant to come and study in London. And uh, I did two combined degrees, business and financial services. And through my financial services expertise or experience, I realized I didn't really like banking, but the insurance people were quite nice. So I ended up working for lots of London. I know we all say we fall into insurance and I did. Yes, we, <laughs> we all do say that. And it was actually I have a wonderful time because um, loads at the time used to go to business school, uh, to, to schools and meet students and actually welcome them to Lloyd's to actually see the build and talk about this amazing product they insured. And when I started actually working at Lloyd's, I worked on fine art. So I uh, helped insure uh, very expensive people and very expensive jewels and paintings. Uh, and then I went Ooh. to do my master's and uh, went into consulting. That's like the Thomas Crown affair, right? <laughs> Something like that. Yes, I know. I mean, that's... imagine I'm French. I had my Hermes bag. Je suis de France. Je suis acquise. I'm here to talk to you about your artwork, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. By the way, by the way, I, I'm, I'm from South Louisiana. And well, you should speak French then. I, yeah, well, I so they make you learn French, and I did go through ten years of French lessons. My grandmother's whole family is from Provence, and uh, so the Pellegrin from Provence, and they came from from France through. Yes, yes, they came from France all the way down. So I was made to learn French, and then I uh, started Spanish. So I'm fluent in Spanish, I'm about fifteen percent in French, but. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, yeah the, so Thomas Crown Affair, for those of you not seen it, it's been made twice, if I'm correct, and it's about an art insurer who tracks down criminals who steal art. So did you get to do anything interesting like that where you're tracking down uh, losses? I, you know, I didn't track down losses. I was more on the uh, underwriting bet, so the risks Ooh. bet. But mm -hmm. I remember seeing one of the biggest blue diamond in my life. I still remember that. It was as big as um, comparative. That's pretty large. Like a, a big, a big Hermes. I mean, I'm thinking Hermes bag, like a big Hermes bag. You know, the, the large version. Uh, That's Hermes. insane. And um, I just could not even believe diamond like that existed. And um, that for me was still today a memory. What I loved is uh, paintings. So the, the the nice things about Lloyd is a lot of the beautiful paintings which are transiting between countries are being insured by Lloyds as well. So I was fortunate to be involved in that world until I had to go and build and actually insure, help insure big uh, building in Korea. And I was less interested. Yeah. And uh, well, but Lloyds is an interesting place to start. I mean, right. It's the, what the, the parent of modern insurance, right? I mean, insurance is a very, very, very old business. I mean, you, you can go back to the ancient Babylonians, right? Uh, if you want to Three hundred and thirty years. Am I right, Rob? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's over three hundred for sure. Yeah, I don't know the exact date. So, yeah, started at the uh, Starbucks, right? <laughs> the, the coffee shop. <laughs> the, the coffee shop. Starbucks they, version. Yes. They, they may take offense at it being referred to as a Starbucks. That's, uh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> but it's a. I mean, they're an impressive, impressive company. But you look back at the history of insurance, right? The Babylonians, and then it rolls into these, these agreed purchase contracts and, and Europe and then they and then Lloyd's 
really the parent of modern insurance. So what what took you past that into where you're at now between um, you know, looking at giant blue diamonds and ensuring the, this this rare art to to w- what you're doing today. What was the path like? So I guess for um, probably 15 years after that, I um, I worked for IBM PwC. FICO, PEGA. And the interesting thing about all those roles is first I was uh, working in strategy teams. Um, so doing business consulting, strategy consulting, growth strategy, you know, identifying segmentations and doing segmentation work, going into identifying new markets, uh, insurance could go after. So my core competency was still in, in insurance. Um, and then, you know, when you do a lot of those uh, type of reports, so I did that for probably eight years. Um, and my core competency as well is uh, is value creation. So I had to do a lot of financial modeling. You have to to realize that at the time, a lot of those reports probably stayed on the shelf. So I thought, you know, that I'm not so fond of that. And so went into technology consulting where I started looking at, at the time, predictive analytics and decisioning, which now, I guess, correspond to AI and all these great uh, new technologies where you have to take the capabilities and look at how they solve business problems. And that is my foray into FICO and PEGA where I was in strategy, still innovation. At the time we, we called it uh, value proposition design where my goal was to actually interact between the, the customer, the insurer and helping them understand what the capabilities could do for them, how the capability could drive value for them. And around five, six years ago, a group of investors um, from one of the big banks, uh, friends of mine, um, had invested a lot of money into a fintech. And they said, you know, Sabine, you have given a lot of your time in corporates, corporate environments. Why don't you now give your time to smaller businesses? Give back. And, you know, I am lucky not to have children. And... I'm able to take risks. And so I went to look at the thing you could you call a fintech for a year. The fintech failed. And I will tell you, I learned for one year what failure means. A lot of it is about people. But then at the end of 2014, I said, you know, these fintech things, that is going to come into insurance. So I set myself up to help insurers work with tech companies that could actually solve that problem. And one of the first companies I worked with was called Tractable. Awesome. And what was your experience like during that? It was fun because the insurer didn't know much about innovation. And I think we are still learning what innovation is. Um, I remember reading the first article uh, stating that insurance was ripe for innovation. And we had, you know, some articles stating that investors had already invested over 3 billion or 2.9 billion into insurtech startups. So everybody got very uncomfortable and realized they needed to do something. The true number now is around 4 billion for 2015. Today, over 29 billion have been invested uh, into 1.4K startups, so 1,500 startups. 
But, you know, there's a lot of startups still coming into the market in InsurTech. Uh, there is around 3,600. So 70% of the startups have no funding. They are just still trying to solve problems for the industry that are not being so full or and some are not going to do very well with uh, the current situation, I assume. But that means we are going to see interesting consolidations. Um, what that means for me is, you know, being part of an industry, insurance, and having a purpose uh, to help insurers work with young players, uh, startups, to solve really big problems and potentially smaller problems uh, that include technology, emerging technology, and help them see how they may be able to design products and services for new and you know, uncharted segments, um, see how processes and structure can actually be enabled and augmented with these technologies. And maybe if you combine, you know, the portfolio strategy, if you combine a lot of them, maybe you can actually design a new business model. Mm. That would be my ultimate goal, designing a new business model with a lot of this new tech. Yeah, not just not just digitizing a current process and making it work on a computer. But actually yeah. upending the business model. And I, I I tell people, you know, you can go paperless by just scanning in your paper and routing it the same way you route paper. You can go digital by starting to re-architect a, a analog process into a different looking digital process. So there's a difference between going paperless and going digital. And Absolutely. and and then, you know, there's a difference between you know digitization and a complete process re-engineer, right? Like, and that, that's what you're, I think you're seeing in the more progressive uh, newer insurance companies that are, that are starting up that look a lot like insurance companies and, and software companies got together and had a baby, you know, and, and instead of, instead of a insurance company using a software company as a vendor, they, they, they actually merge. And it's a, it's a very exciting time. Uh, to be around, Rob. I know you've got a, a lot to say on this topic. What, what are your What are your thoughts or questions for Sabine? Yeah, I think um, Sabine, you've left a, a ton of breadcrumbs there, which uh, there's trying to time to follow on, on all of them. Uh, so thank you for the the background and history. Um, you mentioned working for uh, you know, many large firms before you started working with some of these small startups. One difficulty that I, I experienced firsthand, right, over and over, and I also hear about. Um, from both sides, large companies and small startups is just the challenges, right? Even if um, a, a startup has a solution that could be attractive to a large company, obviously there's cultural differences, there's difference in speed. Well, I was talking to a startup founder and he said, when that large company postpones a meeting for two weeks because, you know, so-and-so, the eighth person in the meeting is on vacation and they want to wait till that person gets back, they don't think about it at all. It's no big deal. He's like, that's two weeks. I have to make payroll. I might have data scientists. I've got you know, programmers, engineers, et cetera, right? That's two weeks farther out from, from getting a potential sale. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts. You've been on the ground and seen this firsthand. Um, maybe some what works and what doesn't, or just any thoughts around this kind of big and small, kind of more staid, reserved insurance industry versus these kind of fast-moving tech companies, and, and how can they partner together successfully? I think it's um, it is a, a really interesting question because the fortunate situation I've been in in building the startup bootcamp in Shotech uh, program is I learned a lot. Uh, one thing I I did do, and I was fortunate to work with uh, amazing insurance brands, you know, over probably across the work you've done in in London with startup bootcamp in Shotech and the work you've done in in Hartford with the Hartford in Shotech Hub, um, over thirty 
insurance brand. One key thing is, you know, those guys, when they work with me is because I'm French, I can be sometimes inflexible. And so they have to be on the train. I call it, you have to be on the Sabine's train. And so that means the corporates which actually want to be part of the accelerator or part of the ecosystem we, we are building need to respect some, some roles. And I know a lot of startups are there. And, you know, in, in the accelerator, we only select 10, 10 startups in each every year. But what that means is that you actually have for three months to actually potentially stop everything and actually prioritize those meetings with those startups. But there is also education to be done to, for, for large enterprises and their, their stakeholders to actually explain that the startup do not have infinite resources. And so not, I mean, not canceling meetings is important. I mean, respecting the fact that even if somebody cannot attend, the other parties can attend that meeting and actually provide a feedback to the latter person or get that person on the call when he or she comes back. Uh, it's also respected that those startups, because they don't have uh, financing, no POCs are free. And so actually you have to respect the time and you have to respect the resources and you have to respect the fact that they are going to work on something. It's also respecting the fact that, you know, those big engines certainly are very slow and um, we have to help change the culture and the mindset. And I was fortunate enough to work with companies which understood that. They had stakeholders which, who were extremely well respected and the design separated processes, um, you know, the startup process to actually accelerate the time to market. Now, you know, there are 5,000 insurance companies out there. The percentages of companies who have done that is probably less than 1%. Um, and so there's so much more which can be done. And uh, I do think, for instance, looking at our current situation, we probably could actually set up some webinars and some, you know, some level of education to actually help large companies understand that um, they can't waste people's time. Uh, It's not allowed anymore uh, because uh, time is precious for those businesses. Boy, that that is the truth. Now, Savine, I'm a 19-year entrepreneur. I started JB Knowledge in my dorm room in 2001 at Texas Mm A&M, the world's finest institute of higher education. Just got to go ahead and lay that out. And uh, (laughs) sorry, it just comes out. You know – I'm, I'm, I did a genetic DNA test and I already knew, I already knew my genealogy going back about 400 years on every side. Cause I'm like a, an ancestry.com nut. And uh, I had a good idea, but my genetics confirmed that I'm, I'm about 30% French, which now I understand where my intractability comes from. Right. <laughs> I love it. The Sabine train. I love it. The Sabine train. And, and I, I say often in, in, you know, business is not a democracy. Private businesses are, are benevolent dictatorships. Um, you, you it, it's just the way they operate. They don't operate like democracies at all. Um, I, I was a city councilman here in my town for six years and, and found out why democracy is so inefficient because it's designed to be because it's designed to get everybody's input. And, and that's it's actually intentionally inefficient because uh, efficient governments are very scary <laughs> because they they tend they tend to rule with an iron fist. Um, and, and so when I look at business, I'm, I'm a bootstrapper, so I didn't get funding. I, I started building websites. Then I started doing custom software for insurance companies, and then I used the money I made off those custom software gigs to build the products that I built for insurance companies. So I bootstrapped my way in to smart bid, smart compliance, Terra Claim, our new claims 
uh, software. You know, we we used our own funding, but it took so much longer, right? And and I and I understand why, um, you know, why people get together and want to raise money because it shortcuts, you know, years of of uh, of having to figure things out. But bootstrapping does force you to be very, very, very cost efficient because it's your it's always your money, yeah. you know, and so. You know, my team, my leadership team, it's they're always making decisions like it's their money because it's their money. And so we we tend to be extremely cost efficient. And when you look at like you talked about no free POCs, right? No free proofs of concept. And and these are very, very common concepts to bootstrapped entrepreneurs. But to, to funded companies, you know, they can learn a lot by trying to think like a bootstrapper because they would be far more efficient with the capital. And, and that's really where I've seen. And I, I'd like for you to talk about that. How do you get funded organizations to think more like bootstrappers so they can be a little more efficient with time. Like you said, not accept that six meeting reschedule. You, know, you don't have the luxury of waiting six meetings. You, you could literally go out of business waiting that long. So how are you getting them to that, uh, to that point? So a lot of um, it's about reframing uh, the problem and also um, driving fear. I, I think um, today insurance companies need not only to be relevant for their customers, um, they need also to be responsive and amongst other uh, criteria they, they need to fulfill. And <clears throat> I think the relevance um, criteria is, is key because you need to serve your existing customers and actually uh, try to enhance new customer segments such as, you know, answering the need of the, the millennial, uh, looking at, uh, for example, an elderly population, which today needs a lot of support from insurance companies and small and medium enterprises, um, which, you know, everybody is going to, to be reset and, and become much more resilient. What I've seen with large companies is that when you actually start framing the problem in such a way that it drives urgency, they respond very well. But it's about focusing on things which matter to them, whether it's innovation team or, in my case, uh, the business uh, leaders, the people with the PNL, the people who actually have to achieve something in, in, in a specific year. And technology can enable them to do that, which could be underwriting or claims. I know probably short terms, but when you start with the short term bits, you can actually start talking about the long term what we call horizon two and three type of problems. What we often see with those um, large companies also about structure and governance. And so if you actually communicate in, in a language they understand, also they are more likely to be responsive. Um, and because I've been in insurance for quite a little bit of time, I can appreciate that um, understanding. Yeah, I, I've looked at this too. Why don't people get off center on change and innovation? You know, why am I having to talk about APIs in the year 2020 at insurance conferences? This is insane. We've had this technology for a decade and a half. Why are they viewing this as progressive when it's really behind? I would say comfort is the enemy of progress. And what happens is a lot of insurance executives, they, they fight their way up the ladder at their companies. And you know, it's a political slugfest yep. at insurance companies. Often. Yeah. And you know they fight their way up. They make really good money when they get there. They make good money along the way. I mean, the same thing in the brokerage business. I mean, these producers, you know, have have decent earnings, and they get to a point where they make more money than they ever thought they'd make in their life, right? Or or that they they had hoped, and they hit that point, and they're like, mm, "I'm here. 
all right, now how do I just protect this? <laughs> like, yeah. How do I make sure I don't make less than this ever again? Rather than looking at the upside, they look at downside protection. Malcolm Gladwell spent a lot of time analyzing upside versus downside protection. And, and he has some really interesting thoughts on his podcast. That I'm not going to spoil because it it's his podcast. Talking about people being very much more focused on downside protection rather than upside potential. And, and it just kind of just taps into the basis of the human brain, the way it works, right? Uh, but it, it can certainly create a lot of frustration. And so you're right. I mean, if you can actually get them to understand and and look at what disruptive um, technology can do to a traditional business that appears to be bulletproof, it can certainly motivate them to action in a big way. Rob, I know you've had to, to deal with this at multiple yeah. companies and and you've been at the center of this discussion as well. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and any other questions you have for Sabine. Yeah, I, I'm um, curious, Sabine, in your thoughts about, obviously, you know, you mentioned some of the players, uh, um, Pega and others, right, that are large companies. There's there's a ton of others that are, are used to selling into the insurance industry, right? And so you've got enterprise sales teams, you know, kind of how it goes in terms of working with a, a really large insurance company and to have those conversations and to put everybody at ease. Um, and that, again, is not something that these startups have, right? So it's, it's not just about the technology, but it's about how is that going to integrate into the full IT stack, um, architecture is important, security is important, et cetera. And, um, you know, a lot of insurance companies, of course, you know, again, um, you, you don't want to screw up what you already have, right? And and, and and there's a ton of technical debt in there and whatnot. So maybe you can just talk about like, um, on the one hand, how do you um, encourage traditional large insurers to, 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 to take the leap or what, 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 what do you see is maybe their most common um, you know, hesitations or, or concerns? Um, and then alternatively, like, how do you get the startups to go beyond just the technology, right, to kind of help um, educate them and, and position them to where they are successfully able to position their product um, so that there is a, a marriage? So I'll start with the startup because I think the biggest problem with startup right now, um, and you can put the insurer before tech, but they are actually often tech businesses. And tech businesses, unfortunately, I would say, do not always sell, particularly when your client is a business. So therefore, you need to really tune into the business problem. And one key thing I've been working with the startups I am supporting and um, I am elevating is let's just stop about the enablers. Techs are just enablers. It's great to talk about AI and machine learning and blockchain. I don't care. I just want to know how, I mean, it's great capabilities and those capabilities are, you know, key to address problems of tomorrow. But if we don't understand the problem we, we are trying to solve for, they are irrelevant. So let's try to understand the problem we are solving for. And actually, let's understand what each corporates are focusing on right now. And so it's interesting because when I talk to a lot of the insurance companies I've worked with and... Um, that I'm trying to identify new problems with today. Um, they said, Sabine, you know, you know already my five topics. I have a guess. My five topics have not changed, but that was two weeks ago. So I think that may have evolved. Um, but just by being aware of that, reading the annual report, reading the articles from some of the key 
execs, you can actually have a business theme that you can actually support your thesis on and start then aligning, um, you know, things that need to be solved for with technology to those problems. So I said, you know, startups just read more, um, align your content accordingly and just leave the tech for later. It's going to be important, but first it's about the business case, the business case of change. On the corporate side, I would say that we often get the same questions around security, privacy, you know, um, I, could, I mean, I, I tend to, to know my gatekeepers and the gatekeepers will be IT, legal, procurement, compliance. And actually, why not build a checklist? And we build checklists around what is going to happen. Um, often, the startup will get a 200, uh, questionnaire, 200 questions uh, questionnaire to respond. And they were going to send it to me. I said, what do I do with that? I said, well, let me talk to the insurer because actually this is for uh, the IBM of this world. And so we just need to make sure that um, we do not treat young businesses as we are treating our main vendors as well. Um, so there is education for the large enterprises to accelerate the ability to find technologies, let's say, but to find solutions to, to big problems much faster by allowing those young players to come in easier, but also by creating checklists, uh, which are, you know, straightforward, you know, day one, when we start even, you know, Mine is day one. When we start interacting with those large enterprises, we know what we need to answer for. Now, I, I know those, you know, I have those in my head, uh, but, you know, it has to be through through learning for the past five years. Yeah, I think that's so important. There's a bit of maturity. I know, you know, kind of when I really started, I guess, encountering startups for the first time in 2015, I kept taking them all as a one-off and, and yeah, it was a very painful process, right? Because there was no process or it wasn't clear and you kept running into what were perceived roadblocks and kind of knowing that these are the stakeholders that I need to have engaged up front. These are the questions they're going to ask, et cetera, et cetera. And, and formalizing that while sometimes uh, when you formalize it, you feel like you're slowing things down, right? You think about bureaucracy, red tape, et cetera. Actually, right, you can certainly um, speed up the process because you know exactly these are the questions that we're going to have to answer and we don't have to answer all 200 of them right here the, the main concerns and whatnot so i love that thank you for sharing yeah that's that's interesting you have to you, startups especially big funded startups like the phrase move fast and break stuff and that sounds great like it, it sounds great you know yeah move fast and break stuff and then you're working with a carrier whom if you move fast and break things, you might break their entire underwriting model. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, that won't happen. I mean, you, you could have, you could have billion dollar consequences from moving fast and breaking stuff. And so move fast and break stuff sounds great when you're talking about a social media website or a, or a, so, you know, a, a consumer app. But when you're getting into, you know, large business, that was like lesson number one for us is learning how to balance the careful, methodical, process that most insurance companies have arrived at for deploying change because they've experienced this problem in particular when they've changed things on underwriting you know if they if they make the wrong decision they could end up screwing up a whole market right yeah and and, and repetitional risk so often you know when I, I look at i call it you know startup care theory and i said to my startups like look at whatever you want to do like move fast and all those things put a d before it because insurers would want to de-risks they will want to actually manage uncertainty. So let's keep it simple. Just put a D in front of DE, in front of everything you want to do. And then it will get you into the insurer's mind. 
and then actually start developing approaches, processes, um, techniques, tools to help the insurance companies see that you're actually on their side to manage their reputation and risking issues that may happen while working with you. Um, and then, you know, when everybody is aligned, you end up having amazing relationships. But Another thing I think which is important with uh, startups, and I think a lot of this is welcome from, you know, Silicon Valley is everybody wants to sell very, close, very fast and, and close deals. Actually, the first meeting, please don't try to sell. Just listen. <laughs> Just listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, I mean, and, and look, it's, Sabine, it's starting to bite them in the butt. Let's be honest. Uh, the growth at all costs mentality from Silicon Valley is is a two-headed snake that's coming back in on itself right now because what yeah. what's happening is they're hitting they're hitting public markets with that sell 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 growth at all cost model and of course they're 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 loss subsidizing the their way on on the way to get there and, you know there's a there's a, a really big company in the construct tech space right now that's the other space that we have a lot of experience with because we got we got introduced to it through the the bonding business there's a really big company that there's 200 well i say really big 250 million dollar tech company um but they're losing 83 million dollars a year on 250 in revenue and so they're buying all their they're buying their growth and they're trying to ipo and and you know let's just say that the price they're trying to get is not exactly dovetailing with what the market's willing to pay so you know there's there's also that the the sales 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 growth at all costs you know when we work in peloton all these companies are hitting the public markets they're not responding well. And, and and look, don't forget, a lot of those public markets are controlled by the investment funds from the insurance companies themselves, right? I Absolutely. Mean, I mean, like, don't forget, that's where, you know, I, I always like remind people that want to jump into insure tech. I'm like, don't forget, there's two, they play on two sides of this equation. They're the insurer, they're the client. They're also probably part Investors. of the fund that's investing in you. Because that's how they, you know, they make their money on their loss ratio, but they also make their money on their and what they do with their investments. And so, you know, it's it, it, you got you got to really understand the big picture if you want to jump into the space, right? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Rob, great discussion by the way with Sabine. Thank you for that. What Sabine? What do what do you think's next? I mean, we, we've, we're in a we're in a we're in a. And I told you we're not going to talk about that which shall not be named today. It's Voldemort. Absolutely. It's, Vol it's Voldemort. We're not talking about it. So let's just say changing market, changing economy, dynamic future. What's the next big thing? What, where, where do you think we're racing towards? I, I mean, my personal view is um, there is going to be a lot of focus around, I will use the term responsibility and purpose because um, – from from conversations I've had, um, you know, we are looking at climate change. We are looking at the way we eat. We are looking at electric cars. We are looking at, you know, connected homes. You know, the things we've heard for the past five years. But I think that leads us to understand better how we play in a sustainable world. And what I mean by that, I've been doing a lot of study of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And actually, when you start playing with those, you actually see that we are talking about prevention. We are talking about the things we are going to affect us right now, autonomous driving. And actually, if there is no car to individual to insure car for, um, 
what is insurance premium going to be in the future? What is going to be uh, our liability? Is it that insurance company are going to work with big motor manufacturers and insure directly with them? And therefore, we're moving from personal line to, to fleets, so therefore commercial lines. Or is that going to look differently from an underwriting viewpoint? When we start looking at, at, at healthcare or emerging risk, you know, climate change, I mentioned, let's look at emerging risks. What are the emerging risks of the future are we going to ensure? What is the data we need? I'm having amazing conversations at the moment with a number of universities who are building a unique data sets, not only looking at weather, but, you know, like I shared this morning, looking at uh, diseases. And so, you know, the things we are going to be looking at tomorrow are probably not what we are looking at today, but will actually probably be aligned to the fact that we need to do better for by our customers. So inclusion, uh, serving underserved market. We need to make sure our processes are aligned and much more responsive. Digital transformation is great, but actually potentially we need to innovate better. And then we are going to have to integrate our supply chain into everything we do. So, you know, this insurance thing, I'm ensuring, um, you know, coal mining, uh, you know, provider, I'm ensuring and I'm checking that they are doing 30% renewable energy. Well, I also need to make sure that anyone involved in my supply chain are actually behaving right. And this is going to be a lot of work and very exciting, actually. It is. If you like change, it's an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> If if, if you don't, uh, I uh, I think it might be a very painful uh, few years ahead. Um, change is tough. Any change, right? And certainly, market condition changes bring about a lot of a lot of risk and a lot of opportunity. Um, I'm old enough to have been through the dot com bust, nine eleven, the 08 recession as, as a business owner of the same business. Uh, it, you know we've. We've had to ride through lots of different change, and uh, certainly we're we're going to all of those events irrevocably changed the economic and uh, world landscape. I mean, the dot com bust changed everything <clears throat> in technology. It did. Nine eleven changed everything in travel and security. It did. Absolutely. The 08 bust changed everything in lending and mortgages. And I mean, it, you know, it's it's just we we're we are forever different. The, because of what's going on, we will forever be different, and we have to, you know, rethink. There, there are models that did not even contemplate the level of change that the world has gone under in the last two weeks. That they, they literally, it was so far outside of any actuarial's model that they couldn't possibly account for this level of of, uh, of change. Absolutely true. Uh, you're absolutely right, and you know. What what is going to happen? We don't know. But right now, I know the question is around resilience and business continuity, and I respect that. Uh, but we need to actually look at the short term needs and fulfill those needs. But we must not for, forget that there is a, a longer visionary uh, line of sight. We also need to to, to keep in mind. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Well, we. We are running up on our time limit. Uh, Rob, I would love to hear any closing thoughts that you have. Yeah, so um, my my last question, Sabine, so um, you've been kind of a, a model and, and mentor to me over the years, one of the first uh, 
social media influences in the insure tech space. So um, yeah, how did how did that kind of become where you kind of, you know, you're probably known more for that than anything that you've done previously in your career. And, and um, yeah, how do you, how do you handle your fame? How do I handle my fame? I, you know, I don't see myself as being famous, to be honest. I just want to do great work. I want to have a great purpose. I want, when I talk to you on, on LinkedIn or Twitter, it's because I'm excited to read what you're actually assigning me when I wake up at six o'clock in the morning. And at the same time, I feel like I need to share something. And for me, it's being about being connected. And you know, a lot of the learning we are going to make in the next few months is how can we be better connected and how can we use technology better to, to support each other? So for me, uh, whether it's LinkedIn or, or Twitter, it's uh, a platform to sometimes have a smile, sometimes to be aware of the things that I don't know, and also share the things that I found that I think you guys may, may like. I do love being on the stage and um, doing a little bit of a keynote, as you know. Um, but at the end of the day, it's always about others. For me, it's about sharing, uh, being happy. And having an impact in the world we are in, and I hope I can continue doing that in the next, you know, next few months and in the future. Awesome, love it. Thank you so much, Mean. Absolutely, so uh, great to have you on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Sure. Yeah. And um, Rob, thanks for uh, for co-hosting, Sabine. Um, I'm going to try and break out <clears throat> the French of my origin. Merci beaucoup d'avoir participé à la mission. Merci. So, Merci, Merci de m'avoir aujourd'hui. Yeah, yeah, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Now, we have a funny saying uh, in Louisiana state motto, laissez les bons temps rouler. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's a bit creole, actually. <laughs> it is very creole, and I am creole. Yeah, and so. my parents probably told that to me, actually. Yes. So that to show that the creole from yes. between French and Louisiana I may be a little bit similar. Yes, exactly. So let the good times roll. Uh, no matter what happens in your life, remember there's fun to be had every day in every circumstance. Stay positive. Focus on what you can do. My... My, both my parents taught me that a lot growing up. You can't worry about the things you can't control because you have no influence on over them. So what you can do is focus on the tasks you perform every day to influence your outcome. And that, that's it. That's all you can do. And uh, so just a, a big word of encouragement for everybody out there to stay focused on what you can do. Get creative. Get innovative. Um, and, uh, and, and focus on some fun you can have every day. So thank you all for listening. Sabine, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much for... Awesome. Yes. James and Rob. Thank you. Yes. The InsureTech Geek podcast powered by JB Knowledge is about all about technology. It's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your co-host, James Benham, along with my other co-host, Rob Galbraith, the most interesting man in insurance. You can, uh, of course, read his book uh, and you can go to my website at jamesbenham.com and check that out. Thanks to Jim Greenlee, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. Look forward to talking to you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and keep geeking out. Talk to you all soon.